If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willers getting booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks. I heard there is a special sewer pipe in Hamilton. That when you flush, it ends up at the Toronto City Hall. Whoops, sorry, fake news. In his 40th year in the media, here's Scott Thompson. Uh, Major Tom, uh, Wild Will. Good afternoon, it is 308, it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, uh, thanks for being here. I want to bring in Anish Shervastava from the URG, uh, uh, Unique Restaurant Group, and that includes the Powerhouse, District's Kitchen and Bar, the King George, the Dickens, South Coat 53, and the B-Side Social, and Anish is with us now. Anish, thanks for the time, I hope you're doing well. What's it been like for you this season? Obviously, we know what it's been like for the past couple of seasons due to the pandemic and such. What was this uh, holiday season? And like for you and the group of restaurants uh, as you head into January? Uh, holiday season was fantastic. Um, yeah, I think there was a lot of uh, pent up uh, cel- celebrations that people wanted to have after, you know, missing a couple of, of Christmases and a couple of holiday seasons. So there was uh, a lot of, um, uh, you know, parties and holiday parties and corporate parties and things like that in December. So uh, we're very happy with, with the results uh, back in December. And what about heading into the new year? Obviously, January, February, lean months for everybody, uh, you know, as people sort of, you know, get out of the, the, the seasonal funk and back into spring and such. What's it? What are you expecting this January, Feb? I mean, yeah, typically it's uh, the first six weeks of the year are, are, are really bad for the industry. I mean, most people don't even break even during, during that time yeah. period. I think there's an extra concern this year with all the, you know, the, the, uh, with talk of inflation and interest rates increasing. I think a lot yeah. of people held on till Christmas, if that makes sense. And I think there'll be a bit of a reckoning in the, in the next, uh, you know, next month or two. But on the flip side, if the weather stays like this, it may actually save us. So, Yeah, good point. All right. So uh, the great thing about you uh, knowing you, Anish, is that I get the insides and outs of the business and, and how it's all working and why you do what you do. So uh, I'm certainly not a man of a, a man about town like you are and go in and, and inspect and look at all these places, looking for ideas, inspiration, that sort of thing. Uh, but we've talked over the years about many things, whether it's been tipping or the, the pandemic or what have you. So uh, Eileen and I are out uh, and we're meeting uh, friends from Toronto halfway at a place in Mississauga. I'll leave it at that. I don't want to name it or anything like that. And, you know, a uh, beautiful place, like really cool looking, all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, we went to meet for uh, uh, to meet them there, rather. And they were there ahead of us and said, well, can we sit at the bar? Nope, nope. Um, you have to sit here. Uh, but no drink, you know, just sit and wait sort of thing. So they went into the mall. Uh, Eileen and I arrived maybe about five or ten minutes early. No problem. You know, drop your name. Uh, here we go. Off you go. And then the very last thing they said to us was... You have the table for two hours. <laughs> and I've never heard that before in my life. I know I'm an old fart, but, you know, and again, it's not like we were going to hang out for probably anymore. I think we were there maybe two and a half because we were joking. Hey, we're right. 30 minutes past our time and they haven't kicked <laughs> us out yet. Uh, but then again, we did keep, you know, we kept we kept deserting, as they say. So uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Have you heard about that now? Let's be honest. I think this was a younger, swankier place. Uh, and obviously they had uh, a good business. But have you heard of this before? Does it happen a lot? Yeah. So, so two things. It's, it's definitely not new. I would say it was a, it's a lot more common um, with the places that are really high end, make all their money off of, you know, Friday and Saturday night dinners, uh, you know, downtown Toronto type of places. They've probably been doing that for, for quite a while. Um, but I think where you're seeing it uh, kind of pop up in more places is uh, during COVID. So mm-hmm. what, ha- what started happening during COVID is if you remember all the time periods where the restaurants were open, yeah. like there was capacity restrictions and stuff like right. that. And so the restaurants are really focused on how do I get the most people in and out uh, because I can only have 50% capacity or whatnot, right? Um, and I think that has kind of stuck around a bit because uh, for obvious reasons, right? If you can get two turns of a table in a night instead of one, that's potentially you know, double double the the, the revenue. Yeah. Um, I I know from our perspective, we we did do that during COVID. We had uh, you know time limits in that. Um, 
I don't even know if I've taken it off the website, to be 100% honest with you. But now it's more just if we have reservations. That's really the only time we would we would mention to somebody, hey, by the way, um, you know, we've got a reservation coming in at 9. We're going to need this table back or something like that. Um, but that's pretty much the only situation we would do that in. So would this have anything to do with staffing issues or is that irrelevant? Because, again, no, obviously, there's still short staffing issues in, in places. <laughs> No, I don't. I don't think it's it's staffing. It really, it really. I, I hate to say it, but it's really just about getting uh, more business to the door. Yeah, right? it's, yeah. It's, you're, you're, you're done your meal. Um, you know, uh, there's a table for four waiting who are who are, you know, worth X because they're going to sit down and have apps and you know, uh, a dinner and some drinks versus uh, people sitting at the table for another hour or two having a drink or two. And I know it sounds you know a bit frustrating or potentially even greedy, but you you, you got to look at the other side, which is. You go to a lot of restaurants on a Friday and Saturday night where this is happening. These restaurants also are operating at 30% capacity on a Tuesday night because people, right. everybody goes out Friday and Saturday night. So they, there's kind of that balance of, of, you know, how do I, how do I make the most of the, the, the customers I have walking through the door? And plus, you know, you got to think there's people that are just going to go in there and nurse something all night just to kind of hang out and, you know, and socialize without really thinking about, yeah, you know, this is a revenue, uh, there's a revenue right. stream here. Yeah. Right. So uh, do you see this increasing over time? Do you see where do you see this going? Is this no, just, a, uh, just a fact of life now? I don't, I don't think, I think at the end of the day, you're, you're always, like I said, you had it beforehand. Um, I think you're going to see it in places that, um, uh, you know, make, uh, make a lot of their money in a concentrated period of time. Right. Right. I think that's the best way of looking at it. Those places that are book solid Fridays and Saturdays from, you know, 5 PM to 10 PM. And, you know, and that's why I talk about more fine dining type establishments and things of that nature, where they don't have a lunch business. They may not have much of the midweek business. Right. And so, um, every one of those tables tables counts. Um, I've been looking at. I I, I took a look at the uh, when uh, Toronto got those Michelin star restaurants. Right, thought I'd mm. go check them out. Like not physically, but online. And almost every single one of them has has a seating limit. You can imagine the demand that that yeah. exists for these places. Right, very so good point. Get more there versus you know I'd be surprised if your local neighborhood pub is going to kick you out after nine minutes. That would be kind of silly. Anish Vastava with his owner of Unique Restaurant Group. That includes Powerhouse, District Kitchen and Bar, The King George, South Coat 53, The Dickens and B-Side Social. Anish, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Good luck. Take care, Scott. Earlier today, Premier Doug Ford held his first, uh, his first news conference of 2023, talking about uh, the pharmacies now having the ability to uh, prescribe certain drugs uh, just to get things moving along, uh, something that, that certainly wasn't new. Colin DeMello is with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, and here now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. So I uh, heard you there with the Premier earlier on today as we're watching this uh, newscast and, and many, including you, asking um, uh, about uh, Bill 124 and uh, and basically his take on this. And this is, of course, this was the bill that held public uh, service contracts at 1% was that these were all lapsing. They were expiring and then they would be uh, renegoti- renegotiated with whoever is uh, whatever group is negotiating next and such. And and kind of brushed it off, but then when asked what about the court cases involving all of this, he, he didn't have much to say. What was your take on on all of this? Well, the premier is being um, you know accurate in one sense, and also you know not giving uh, viewers or listeners or and readers at home a full picture of exactly what's going on with Bill One Twenty Four. So it is correct. Bill 124 applies for a three-year period for any union that was signing a new contract with the government. So if uh, a union signed in 2019, as an example, and they're renegotiating their contract, Bill 124 will no longer apply. But there were a lot of unions that still haven't signed a contract with the government, and they will be subject to Bill 124 once they sign that contract. And, and uh, you know, how many people does that represent? So 70% of Ontario's workforce, according to Ontario's uh, budget watchdog, 70% of the workforce 
already have had Bill 124 applied to them. That leaves 30% of the workforce that still has Bill 124 hanging over their heads, and they still have yet to experience the wage suppression legislation that will hold their contracts to a 1% increase per year for three years. So the premier is halfway correct, but also not telling people exactly the full picture of Bill 124, because there are still thousands of employees and about 100,000 of them work in the healthcare sector who have yet to experience the impacts of Bill 124. So would this apply to contracts that have not been signed yet? Because correct. the yes, correct. because the understanding the understanding we're getting here is that no, as they expire, they will be renewed without this. But you're saying they're being renewed with this same stipulation. No, so if if so, Bill One Twenty Four applies for a three year period, right? You know, if if since twenty nineteen a union, let's talk, let's say the college, uh, the Ontario Nurses Association, mm-hmm. you know, they signed a contract uh, sometime in 2019, 2020, You know, their contract is expiring, so they will no longer have the impacts of Bill One Twenty Four, right? But if a union if their contract is just expiring now and they never had the impacts of Bill 124 applied to them because you know, their contract had just lingered on throughout Bill 124, they will now have Bill 124 applied to them. And it is it does sound a bit complicated, but, you know, the bottom line is that there are more than 100,000 public sector employees in Ontario who have yet to experience the impacts of Bill 124. Their unions are in negotiations with the Ontario government and they will have Bill 124 applied to them. That is currently the law. So, um, so, and again, sorry about this, Colin, but I'm getting you to drag this out for us. But, um, so for example, somebody in 2019, obviously that's expired. Someone who was just signed last year, they're going to have to go through two years of this before they get re-signed. But you're saying that there's some out there that have not re-signed that will, that, that haven't felt the 1%, uh, uh, wage increase and, and, and they will have to go through that for a period of three years as well. Yeah, that's correct. This actually comes directly from um, the Ontario's uh, financial accountability officer, who really is the budget watchdog. And he does a lot of these analysis of, you know, financial uh, spending arrangements from the Ontario government. And he said there are some 22,000 employees who work in the college sector, 33,000 employees who work in other ministries and agencies, and 103 employees who work in the healthcare or hospital hospital sector, their unions um, have yet to actually negotiate a contract under the umbrella of Bill 124. So Uh, that amounts to about 160,000 or so employees who will be experiencing the impacts of Bill 124 and will see their wages capped at an increase of 1% per year for for three years. Um, So, you know, the, the premier's somewhat correct, right? Nurses, They've already gone through Bill 124. Now that they're Uh renegotiating their contracts, the law won't apply to them anymore because it was only for a three-year period. But what about all the thousands of employees in the province who have yet to negotiate under that law? They will soon be feeling the impacts of this wage suppression legislation. Uh, that seems almost bizarre that uh, as something lapses. So w- what you're saying is that, it, you know, if you're going through your contract negotiations, your phases, whatever you go through, uh, in order to get from one to the other, you have to experience Bill 124 by getting that 1% uh, increase over three years. You have to go through that cycle, per se. Yeah, that's that that is exactly correct, right? So I mean it and it's it's a one-time thing. It lasts right. for one contract. Uh but every single Ontario public employee who's unionized would have to go through that cycle. Now, so there are the so so there's public employees that have not even gone through this yet, haven't been clawed back to one percent, are still enjoying whatever the previous contract was, but the next one they're gonna have to go through this before they can come out the other end. That's correct. At a time when, you know, inflation is at an all time high and places like the city of Toronto, uh, property taxes are going up, you know, costs more to fill up your tank. It costs more to buy food at the grocery store. Uh, That is why a lot of employees have been saying that Bill 124 is demoralizing and is driving workers out of the public um, public sector in Ontario. And that's about 30. This is you figure there's about 30 percent left that are still going to have to go through this cycle. 
Yeah, that's correct. And that comes directly from the uh, financial accountability officer who, you know, is uh, well-versed in math more so than I am, who's done all of these calculations to determine who's in and who's out and who has yet to feel these impacts. All right. Well, thank you for explaining that. We've only got about a minute or so left. What else stood out for you at this news conference? Yeah, the premier is basically, you know, um, going against or 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 downplaying the analysis of his own government. So, you know, we got documents from the Ministry of Health that indicated very strongly that at least the government believed internally that concerns about Bill 124 was having an impact in the province's own ability to be able to retain healthcare staff in the hospital system, uh, particularly nurses. And the premier today said, listen, if if, you know, there was anything negative it must not have been, quote, accurate. And that is quite astounding to see the premier basically saying that his own ministry officials were inaccurate in their assessment of the impact of Bill 124. Um, there is a lot more that will be coming on this. Uh, but but for now, it seems like the premier is really trying to win the public um, air war when it comes to Bill 124. But the facts, unfortunately, don't quite back up exactly what the premier's assertions are today. It seemed to me, Colin, what he was trying to portray was, uh, as you, as you who were questioning him were saying, well, what about the morale issue here and, and the people vacating? He's going, well, look at the lineup to get in, man, and look at all the people we've hired. He sort of used that to, to counter what you guys were saying. And that's true. I mean, there have been record numbers of nurses who are yeah. registering. But again, the question is, where yeah. are those nurses going? And and this assessment is coming from the province itself. The province in these internal documents that Global News obtained has acknowledged that nurses are registering, but in larger numbers, they're choosing to work away from the front lines. So nurses are registering to keep up with their licenses. But if they're not going to the front lines where arguably they might be needed the most mm. during this unprecedented time in the healthcare sector, what is the point of having these huge volumes of nurses? The premier is talking about the numbers of nurses registering. He's not talking about where they're going and, and more importantly, where they don't want to go, which is the front lines of the healthcare system. Because as we've heard from nurses and, um, you know, nursing advocates, they're burnt out, they're demoralized, and they just don't want to do it anymore. Colin DeMello breaking it down. Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global tonight for more on all of this. Colin, thanks so much for that. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you for having me. We know that uh, all three leaders of Mexico, Canada, the United States getting together at the Three Amigos Summit over the last couple of days to hammer things out. Uh, looking for a new North American vision, they are. Uh, but one of the sort of sidebars that came out of all of this, uh, border, border issues, explicitly Canadian Nexus enrollment centers that are set to reopen in the spring alongside a new program allowing U.S.-led interviews to be conducted at Canadian airports. We'll talk about that. Also, just where we are after after the holidays, Barry Choi is with us, travel expert, and here now. Barry, thanks for the time. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Good afternoon. So before we get to Nexus, Barry, uh, just your thoughts on what we saw happen over uh, the holidays. Was that the same or, uh, you know, obviously the results the same. People are delayed and, and ticked off. But was that the same as what we saw in the summer? Different set of problems. Different set of problems. It was a perfect storm, literally a storm, a uh, snowstorm across the country, which is unusual. It started in Vancouver, then we got it on the East Coast. Uh, so we saw delays all over and obviously even in the northeastern USA. Um, but, you know, when you combine bad weather, uh, increased traffic due to the holidays, of course, things are going to be bad. Some people are still waiting to get their bags. But honestly, I think if you were to travel in the next two weeks, things shouldn't be too bad at all. Yeah, it seemed one airline in particular, Sunwing here in Canada, was taking a hit. Um, it, was that the major problem? Was it others? Uh, they just handled it uh, not as good as the others. How do you explain that? You know, everyone has their own issues, but when you've got an airline like Sunwing, which is basically a much smaller airline, uh, yeah, there's no excuse. You know, they decide to basically pull out of Saskatchewan, left everyone stranded, their vacation plans canceled. There's no excuse for that. But at the same time, you know, technically speaking, they've canceled the flights and refunded the money. They've met their obligation. Uh, it's just a bad look, uh, obviously. Uh, and this is why quite often I recommend people to go with bigger companies or companies that might have a slightly more generous refund slash cancellation policy. And we are already seeing things uh, improve, aren't we? Things are starting to settle down. You know, settle down is the right word. Obviously, people who traveled uh, and had their backslide may disagree with you and I. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, 
but overall, I, I think things are getting back to normal. It is better compared to the summer. Uh, you, you know, the easiest way is like just look at the headlines. You don't hear about it as much. The delayed baggage we're hearing about is from passengers who have been missing it for the last few weeks. Again, that's not an excuse. Uh, I'm just trying to say that things are technically better. Theoretically, are we expecting the same thing very March break or the winter travel season or because it's spread out a little bit more, it's, it may not be as bad? Am I being optimistic? I think it's not as bad in the sense that some people would have been scared off. Uh, so it'll be a little different. And, you know, when you think about it, March break in Ontario is different from the timing in, say, Alberta and Quebec. So, yeah, you're right. It is spread out a little bit. Whereas, you know, the, the Christmas holidays is pretty similar in the sense that everyone's trying to travel along the same dates. Uh, so I do expect things to be a little bit better. That said, you know, if all of a sudden there's a snowstorm, you know, that weekend where much work happens, uh, <laughs> I don't like people's odds, right? Uh, obviously, border issues during all of uh, the global pandemic and such, uh, passports then coming out, Nexus as well. Explain to people what Nexus is and what happened during during the pandemic. Yeah, so Nexus is basically a quick entry for American uh, and Canadian citizens to pass through the borders. And what makes it uh, convenient is that it allows you to skip the lines at Pierce International Airport, not just a security line for customs, uh, sorry, with customs, U.S. Border Control and the original security lineup. Uh, so essentially, they're going to check your status beforehand. Uh, you're kind of pre-approved. And so things are a lot quicker. To give you an example, during the peak summer, you and I had discussed this, you know, the wait times for U.S. Customs was, you know, two to three hours. But if you had a, a Nexus card, you could be through in 20 minutes. Uh, and what people don't realize is it's not necessarily just for U.S. Customs. When you come back to Canada from any international destination, there's a Canadian line and then, or rather, there's one, one entry line and then there's a Nexus line. So even if you don't travel to the U.S. law, even if you're just traveling internationally through Pearson, it's definitely beneficial because it, it is a quicker process. So during pandemic, this all down and now they're reinstituting this. Why was this? Why did this take so long to to reimplement? Uh, well, you know, the obvious thing was like during, it was down during the pandemic because they didn't want to do in-person interviews. You know, they never said exactly what the reason was. Uh, but some of the leaked rumors were that the U.S. was really hard about them wanting their U.S. border officers to carry guns. And on the Canadian side, it, they thought it was ridiculous. Why do you need to carry guns at Canadian airports? It wasn't necessary. Uh, so who knows what the eventual hump was to get over. Maybe they just realized it was silly and there was a huge backlog for everyone. Probably makes more sense to increase free trade within North America, and that includes tourism. So why make things difficult? This looks good for both political leaders, uh, especially if you're seeing an increase in tourism dollars across each way. Uh, any validity to the gun issue? I mean, man, I think a, a few tra travelers will be even more upset to figure if that's all, <laughs> all that it was. <laughs> You know, I, I can't say for sure, obviously, my expertise, that goes beyond my expertise. But at the same time, yeah. you know, without generalizing, I'm not surprised. Right? Yeah, uh, it's something ridiculous like that. If they want to make hard stance on that, it, it seems ridiculous. Uh, but regardless, they've sorted through it. For those who are listening who have been on the fence about Nexus, I think it's worth the hassle. Yes, definitely. It's, it's some paperwork, which is all done online. But once you have it, it's good for five years. And even the renewal process is very simple. Barry Choi, travel expert, talking about Nexus coming back as a result of uh, a sidebar at the Three Amigos Summit. Barry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Have a good one. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You might remember a while back when the German Chancellor, during the height or uh, when the, the uh, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, had initially got underway. I guess it was a few months ago, so it'd be longer than that. I stand corrected. Anyway, the German Chancellor shows up and um, there's all this hoopla about showing him a hydrogen uh, plant off the, the off the uh, or on the east coast rather that hasn't even been built yet or approved or anything when really what the German Chancellor was looking for was a deal for Canadian liquid natural gas which of course uh, Europe needs because Russian is now weaponizing and also is needed to get the world off coal and a much cleaner fuel and of course uh, Prime Minister Trudeau show, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau showed him the door and he went over to Qatar and did a deal then. And guess who's coming to knock on the door tomorrow? The Japanese prime minister looking for the same thing. 
Will he end up visiting Qatar right after us, too? Let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, a former liberal MP, and is with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Good to be here, Scott. Uh, the uh, headline in the National Post, Japan to beg for Canadian, or for Canadian natural gas. Um, will they do any better than Germany? Slightly better. Uh, we have the coastal gas link pipeline, which, of course, is being held up by at, you know, uh, activists, miscreants, terrorists, uh, but it's going through nevertheless. It's only one of the 17, 16 projects that, uh, had been on the books, which, uh, 16 of 17, which, uh, uh, ultimately the federal government ensured would not move ahead and by that created conditions to create uh, a lot of doubt about our ability to get pipelines to uh, to uh, tidewaters and more importantly to uh, build out LNG plants. So we're going to really only wind up with one on the BC coast and that may very well uh, be enough for uh, at least some supply of uh, Canadian natural gas uh, to be uh, liquefied and compressed and sent, uh, sent off to uh, uh, various nations, including potentially Japan. So I see a glimmer of hope there. Uh, they might access some of what might eventually happen uh, but uh, the tragedy, of course, is that uh, with 16 uh, other projects having been uh, scuppered by you know, a government that has continues to fight and beat up and go after anything that's uh, a hydrocarbon, uh, we've sort of told the world to buzz off. We, we can go find uh, little, uh, you know, little propellers to fool around with and maybe uh, a couple solar panels made in China and uh, believe that that is the future, which, of course, it isn't. But nevertheless... Uh, Japan will come, uh, might be able to get a little bit of that future LNG, but, uh, the big purchasers, the more serious purchasers, uh, the more serious suppliers, uh, uh, will no doubt, uh, provide Japan with the long-term security that it seeks, something that uh, just can't be done with the, uh, policies of this government, which are anything but secure and uh, create an environment which is, uh, uh, very much doubtful and uh, risks any kind of money anyone wants to invest in Canada. So Japan may fare better than Germany simply because of geography. Uh, Japan, Asia off our west coast. We do have a pipeline there when the terrorists aren't uh, terrorizing the people trying to build it and blowing things up. Yet Germany, Europe, they're screwed because they're off the east coast and uh, there's no pipeline there. No. But the Americans said yes to this stuff and have been very busy. They've built seven, eight, nine, ten LNG plants in the span of the past seven, eight years. The previous administration's and that isn't just by uh, Trump, of course, but uh, you know uh, Obama uh, had no trepidation with saying yes to pipeline building and uh, and uh, did not tolerate the kind of uh, uh, you know the tomfoolery that we've seen here tolerated by uh, frankly people who can't see further than their own you know uh, ignorant noses. Uh, the Americans uh, are now way ahead of us. The Australians way ahead of us. Oman, Qatar, these are countries that uh, uh, understand the importance of LNG. Uh, don't have the reserves that Canada has. They have reserves, but not the quantity that we have, uh, but aren't going to sit around and, uh, you know, play tiddlywinks with uh, fanatics and fools and other miscreants who see Canada as a soft target and have been able to hogtie not just our oil, but critically and rather disturbingly uh, for all of us, um, our natural gas, which, of course, uh, could have been a solution long time ago, but uh, like everything else, Canadians have great ideas, uh, but they're always the last ones to execute. And uh, we have people who vote for this kind of stuff. So, uh, all right. Look, so, Dan, that's crowded. Don't uh, don't complain. We don't have the revenue to pay for them. So you were you are a former Liberal MP. Um, so we have seen uh, the Prime Minister flip flop on the F thirty fives. He said no way. He won an election on this. Uh, we've seen him flip flop on his love affair for the Chinese Communist Party. We've seen him flip flop on a tor- electoral reform. Whatever you pick, pick the issue is there. And, and largely he's doing this because even the F thirty fives, you can tell by the look on his face, he doesn't want any part of this. But he's kind of being forced into it because it's. So so obvious. So will he flip-flop or be forced into realizing this is the way to go as well? Will he flip-flop on, on a, will he find his business case for LNG just like he found a business case for the F-35s? Well, if we had normal, you know, media that wasn't uh, coaxed and believing that uh, the world can, uh, we can live on, you know, pie-in-the-sky ideas on renewables, electric vehicles, and all sorts of other funny kinds of energy, which isn't going to be around for a long time, 
um, you know, we'd, we'd have a prime minister that's held to account and probably have lost the last election decisively. But uh, as long as we have a, a phalanx and a coterie of people out there, very well paid, well healed, engaging in lawfare, engaging in in policy to try to con- continue to promote all of these negative moves that are basically only stifling Canadian energy, then, uh, you know, the Prime Minister is probably going to get a pass on this. But uh, sooner or later, Canadians listening to what we're saying here today are going to put together the fact that when you kill the energy sector in this country, our golden goose, don't expect to get rid of hallway medicine. Don't get rid, don't get, don't expect for a moment to get rid of the national debt that you've accumulated, and it's far more dangerous than any point in the past. And don't expect anybody to want to invest a plug nickel in this country, because we're ha- we have created an environment which is absolutely toxic and hostile to anybody who wants to supply the world with good, clean Canadian energy. And that, again, I don't mean these little, you know, uh, whirly birds and little uh, propellers on the top of little kids' heads, which is exactly what these folks are proposing. I'm, I'm being facetious, but I have to, because... The, what we produce through our electricity, our hydroelectricity, our nuclear, our natural gas, our coal, and our oil is second to none anywhere in the world. We have the third, we have the fourth largest uh, export potential. We have the third largest reserves. We're not using them, and we're hurting ourselves. So, if anybody thinks it's okay to continue to yeah. push this green agenda, well, look, uh, look, look, look forward to a, a very bleak future financially and affordability, as we know, is all gone. By the way, Scott, gas is up about five cents a liter on on Friday. Just uh, thought I'd throw that. <laughs> oh, thank you for that good news, uh, Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Japan showing up, looking for natural gas. Will they get any? Uh, we'll see. It seems that we may be heading down a, um, a a road that we've been down before, and there's a consulting company working for the Canadian government called McKinsey and Company, uh, and many are raising concerns about the Liberal government spending on this consulting firm uh, over the last little while, and Pierre Polyever is calling for a committee to study the government's relationship with this firm. Following reports, it has been awarded 30 times more money in federal contracts under this government than it was under the last government. Uh, and again, really don't know much about it other than they're providing consulting of some sort, uh, whether it's pandemic-related, immigration-related, not sure. We're going to find out more and bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you very much for the invite. So what does this, what does uh, McKinsey and Company actually uh, consult? Is there any, can you give us any idea of what the actual role is, what they do, what files they're on? Uh, no, we don't know the details exactly. Um, the disclosure of contracts is fairly vague. So um, that will be something that the committee will be looking into. It's general government operations, uh, technology developments in the government and uh, things like that. Um, And, you know, there's a specific question with regard to McKinsey. There's also larger questions with regard to uh, how much detail government discloses of these contracts uh, regularly, essentially denying the public's right to know the details. And also the whole issue of consulting out. Um, Consultants charge a lot more then it costs if you have a government employee doing the job. Sometimes consultants are needed for very specific short-term needs where the government doesn't need a full-time government employee uh, sitting there waiting for this work to come up. But it's an overall issue of whether it's better to be consulting, uh, using consultants and with the extra amount they charge or to have people as uh, full-time government employees doing a service. And, uh, why? and the government, uh, government, you know, likes to hand out these contracts to government, the, to firms that are often connected to people in the government, like McKinsey is, with Dominic Barton being the former head of McKinsey and, and Canada's former ambassador to China and also advisor to Trudeau, uh, to the Trudeau liberals. Um, but it raises a lot of questions about the ethics and, and, and waste in government. Uh, so what was the red flag on this particular file with McKinsey? Is it just the fact that they're, that they've been awarded 30 times more than previous governments? I mean, what's, is that what stood out here? Uh, that was raised first by the Globe and Mail, um, how much that they had uh, received um, since 2015 when the Liberals were elected up to the end of uh, uh, March 2021, um, essentially during that five-year period 
period, uh, they received much more. But then last year, in the 2021-2022 fiscal year alone, they received almost as much as they had received in the previous five years. So 30, just over $33 million during a five-year period. And then last year alone, uh, just over $32 million. And that's an enormous increase, obviously, uh, during a one-year period. And it just raises lots of questions. One company getting all of this business, is the contracting fair? And should they be con contracting out these services? Or are there government employees that could be doing this work? And they're already being paid and working full-time for the government. So why aren't they doing the work instead of the government handing a contract? And we'll see whether it ends up smelling really badly uh, in hmm. terms of the contracts being handed out in violation of the rules. I wouldn't be surprised given that there's no penalty for violating the rules, unfortunately, unless it's straight up fraud. How deep does the relationship go with uh, the Liberal Party? You talked about Dominic Barton. Um, is this another we? Uh, we'll see. Um, he was an, an advisor to the Trudeau government. He chaired for the finance minister, Bill Morneau, an advisory council on economic growth. He was then uh, appointed as Canada's ambassador to China, even though Demar Squatch's position was that he had too many conflicts of interest through his spouse's interests with uh, businesses operating in China and McKinsey still operating in China. And he had just left uh, McKinsey. And and then was appointed as Canada's ambassador to China by the Trudeau Liberals. So, you know, what you tend to see when you have these kind of relationships, that what flows from them is uh, government money, like we saw with We Charity. And so we'll see when, as this committee digs into it, it further, whether you see those kind of patterns of uh, rules being broken in order to flow the public's money to McKinsey because they're, they have uh, friends at the top of the Liberal government. Uh, what's the time surprised at all if that's the conclusion? What's the timeline for this committee? Uh, when are we going to know more information? When are we going to start to hear more? Uh, the motions have not uh, been voted on yet to uh, at this uh, House committee, which is called the Government Operations Committee. The, the Conservatives, the, the Bloc Québécois and the NDP, who form a majority of the members of the committee, are all going to support those motions. And they'll they'll be uh, negotiating and setting out a schedule. And that can always be extended. You know, they always agree as a committee to a certain number of days of hearings. And then they see where they're at after that and assess whether they're going to uh, end the study and issue a report or extend it further. All right, Duff, I can't let you go without getting your take on the recent release of the book by uh, former finance minister uh, Morneau, uh, who, who didn't pull any punches when he talked about the prime minister and um, his lack of management on the economy. Your thoughts? Yeah, not surprising. Um, Bill Morneau went out of government in a scandal. Uh, he says, I, sh I shouldn't have taken part in the We Charity decision to hand them uh, tens of millions of dollars uh, of the public's money, given that he was friends with uh, the brothers who run the We Charity. A uh, little too late to be saying that. <laughs> he yeah. shouldn't have been at the table. And uh, he wasn't very apologetic uh, at the time when he was caught. And it's not surprising he's trying to make himself look good and make Trudeau look bad now because uh, he feels he was kind of forced out. And also wouldn't be surprised if he's also trying to position himself to run for the leadership in the future if, if and when uh, Trudeau leaves, if it works with his, his overall career schedule at the time. So it's not surprising to see these kind of books come out and they always try and make the person look good it's because it's their story and they want to make themselves look good in history. But uh, that's why it's so hard to tell the, what really goes on with government decision making because most people never really tell the full truth uh, about what went on, especially if it would make them look bad. Jeff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, talking about McKinsey and Company, uh, a consulting firm which has seen an increase in uh, the amount of money it gets uh, awarded in contracts over the years. Jeff, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll be watching this and happy to talk again about this study as it, as it proceeds. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, those of us that are old enough to remember, uh, I think we've been talking about fighter jets as long as we've been talking about high-speed rail lines between Windsor and uh, Montreal. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating. Uh, but uh, again, it seems fighter jets have been an issue over uh, the last couple of decades with uh, chatter of buying new ones. And now it looks like uh, we're finally doing that. Canada's... Uh, procurement of uh, F-35 jets has been a about face for the Prime Minister, who actually used this uh, during his campaign against Stephen Harper, saying he would never purchase them. Has the world changed? Uh, of course it's changed, or do you just always get this when conflict resolves and then a vacuum appears, and sooner or later somebody fills that vacuum and there's more conflict? Let's bring in Nelson Wiseman, Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. He's with us now. Nelson, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Happy New Year to you and the same to you scott so your thoughts on uh the now purchase of these f-35s um uh, the defense minister saying a different world now um is it that or just if you take your foot off the gas when it comes to military spending sooner or later it catches up with you it's the latter uh, what did uh, my when you ask my thoughts about this it takes me back actually to the 1980s when the issue was uh, helicopters. And yeah. uh, similarly, the Mulroney government was uh, looking to replace its Sky Kings. The Liberals were in opposition, uh, led by Chrétien, opposed it. Uh, when they came into power, they lo- they ended up paying a half a billion dollars, which was a lot of money, at, a lot more than now, uh, as a cancellation fee. Uh, because a contract had been signed with a company by the conservatives. And then uh, Chrétien didn't act on it, but at the minute uh, Paul Martin became prime minister, they ended up uh, uh, purchasing uh, as, uh, the uh, the helicopters which uh, they were originally going to uh, buy. Similarly, Trudeau, yes, he was opposed to purchasing the F-35, but that's because he was in opposition, Mm -hmm. just like Chrétien was in opposition. And uh, what I recall is that when the Harper government said that they were going to purchase them and there wasn't the competition, I remember my students talking about how expensive they would be. It was billions of dollars, I think they were, I forget how much per plane it was, but it was big dollars, and it still is. Uh, what's happened is that it's clearly, uh, it was the choice of the Defense Department, but why why does it come up as a political issue? Because the Canadian public is not sympathetic to spending money on defense. Defense, when you ask the Canadian public, what are the issues that are on you? No mentions defense, unless they're working in the military. So uh, it's an easy thing to stand up when you're in opposition and challenge and oppose the government on whatever they want to do if it requires spending a lot of money. Kind of sounds like health it kind of sounds like healthcare Nelson what do you think about it? Well, healthcare uh no people mention healthcare. It's at the yeah, top of the Good list. point. Yeah, good but point on that. There is. So, um people experience healthcare they yeah. don't experience defense. Yeah, very good point. Um, so it, it seemed that the prime minister was kind of reluctant, reluctant in announcing this. Uh, it was the defense minister uh, that did so. Do you think he does this reluctantly? Uh, we've seen his change of tone on the F-35s. We've seen his change of tone with his view of the Chinese Communist Party. Are, are we seeing uh, a prime minister who's going through a metamorphosis here? How do you explain this? Or is he just getting so much pressure from the outside world? Well, the latter is there because the outside world has changed. I don't think uh, Trudeau was so much uh, a fan of the Communist Party of China as he was about how effective they were in doing certain things. But a lot of uh, a lot of people were 
they were hopeful. I mean, you know, Harper, remember when Harper came into power, he said he wasn't going to deal with China, that human rights counted. And then within a couple of years, you had all kinds of ministers going over there looking for trade and investment. Uh, but a number of things have happened. Uh, to begin with, most Western allies, or a lot of them, uh, Turkey is the most recent one, the Netherlands or others, have signed on to buy F-35s. Canada yeah. is a member of NATO. Canada is also a member of NORAD, which is a bilateral thing between Canada and the U.S. So there's pressure to standardize military equipment so that, uh, you know, they can they can yeah. be used in... in and, uh, and so th- those are factors. Another factor is, now that you've had the invasion of Ukraine... NATO is is becoming more robust in a way in terms of, uh, or it's more coherent and cohesive. So there's renewed uh, light on the fact that NATO countries said they were going to spend 2% of their GDP on defense. Canada has never done it. I don't think maybe since the 1940s, before NATO existed. NATO or NORAD existed. So uh, those things were world-changed. All right, Nelson, and we only got a second left here. Yes or no, is this going to affect uh, the Prime Minister's base at all, or is this just obvious and it's needed? It's both, but it will affect his base, but it is uh, probably needed. Uh, I'm not an authority on which planes you should get, but I go along with the consensus it won't affect the base because people don't uh, – I have anybody that I know that says, oh, I'm voting in this election based on the defense policy of this <laughs> yeah. party or that party. Good point. Nelson Wiseman with us, professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, commenting on the procurement of F-35 jets. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It is 521. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton Today. Tom McKay still looking for your last word. 905-645-3221. You can talk. You can text. You can send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Anybody who listens to this show on a regular basis knows that through the pandemic, we've been hammering and hammering and hammering to continue the discussion on the Canadian healthcare system and trying to move it forward as opposed to uh, applying Band-Aids, which we seem to have been doing um, <laughs> over and over again for like the last several decades. Let's bring in Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician and author of When Politics Comes Before uh, Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, and a senior fellow with McDonald-Lurie Institute. Dr. Sean Watley with us now. Sean, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. Thanks, Scott, and you too. Sean, I saw the story uh, the other day, and I'm sure all Canadians, most Canadians have, uh, uh, the tragic death of a Nova Scotian mother uh, waiting for hours in the Cumberland County emergency room. Um, and, and, you know, if you read further on in the story, she was even uh, a volunteer, a deputy fire chief. So if, if a person who is involved in the EMS system can't get health care, who the heck can? I, when I heard this story, I thought, if this isn't a, a turning point, a pivot, in some form, what the heck else will be? Will this story resonate? Will we finally see some movement after something like this? Yeah, great question. I mean, what a heartbreaking story. You have to focus on that right up front, and I'm glad you did. 37 years old, mother of three, I believe, mm-hmm. and uh, trying to be a good citizen, didn't call the ambulance and and went in and waited for a number of hours and then uh, sounded like um, uh, crashed, you know, blood pressure dropped in the x-ray suite and then ended up in the ICU. So just tragic on so many levels. And I, my heart goes out also to the caregivers, right? You can imagine mm-hmm. the doctors and nurses are really, really rattled from what happened here. Uh, 
when something like this happens, it's too fresh to start doing too much of a gritty analysis. So I'll offer a few comments, but I also want to be very, very cautious that sensitivities are running high. People are just devastated yeah. when something like this happens. But people inevitably start saying, okay, who's at blame? Who who can we who can we point to to hold accountable for this kind of performance? Is it the province's fault? Is it the local hospital's fault? Is it the doctors and nurses' fault? Is it the patient's fault for some reason? And people always throw that in there too. So I I think we can summarize this as a lack of of resources, lack of funding, but that oversimplifies it. It's yeah. always multi-leveled. So why is this particular hospital struggling more than its neighbor hospital down the road? Why did this particular patient seem to wait seven hours when perhaps other patients didn't? And so it, this is a really hard thing to unpack in just a few minutes. Um, beyond saying this is heartbreaking, it's terrible, this should be a never event. Um, it seems that whenever this discussion goes on, uh, the provinces blame the feds, the feds blame the provinces. That's been going on for decades, though. Um, uh, even Bill Morano, former finance minister, in his recent book that's about to come out, said that this is not sustainable. Is change inevitable here? Yeah, so I think we have lots to say, and we can definitely pound on the government with the federal-provincial battle. So um, as you recall, originally it was a cost-sharing arrangement, right? Going back to 1957 with the Hospital Insurance and Diagnostic Services Act, where the Fed said, hey, provinces, you pay for stuff done in hospitals, and we're going to pick up 50% of the bill. Well, it turns out the the feds never, ever got to 50%. The highest they got was in the low 20s in the early 1970s. They turned off the taps, or they they turned off the gravy train in 1977 with the Established Programs and Financing Act. That was the first Trudeau prime minister. And then we've been battling over funds ever since. The uh, Canada Health Care Act, everybody points to that, but really all that did was tell the provinces, hey, no more hospital user fees, no more extra billing. So I agree with uh, um, former uh, uh, federal health, federal finance minister Bill Morneau in saying that we can't throw more money at that. However, if you dig into that article in the Globe, he starts saying we need strings attached. He didn't use that language, but he said we need accountability and performance targets, et cetera, et cetera. And so it gets back to the old debate again about money and control. The feds don't want to give money unless they get more control. And I think I've said it here before, why the heck would you want more control? It's like a dog chasing a car. Okay, now you have control. You want to run this system? Are you yeah. serious? That's a good point. Uh, it seems we're at a turning point here, Sean. There's, and, and maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but either we have two choices here. We can either continue to pour money at a system that is failing because that seems to be the only thing that fixes it, or we can reform. Whose job is it to reform? Is it strictly on the uh, backs of the provinces? Should there be some leadership from the prime minister? Who comes up with the reforms? Yeah, so fantastic question. And really, this it, it gets confusing, especially in when you're reading an article in the in the media or wherever, uh, because we're confusing or we're conflating, we're overlapping three separate conversations. There's a conversation about the feds and the federal provincial relationship. Then there's another conversation at the provinces where they talk about fend, funding also, but it's a different approach. They're talking about provincial budgets and programs and services and allocation. And then there's a third question about how things are managed at the local level. And so if we say, well, the feds just need to work it out with the provinces and everything will be uh, rainbows and ponies, it won't. Because you still have to get the Fed, the, the provinces to work things out at their level with their programs, services, allocation, budgeting, the whole thing. Uh, that has to be worked out. And then you also need things to work really, really well at the local level with hospital management and relationships with unions and, and uh, fundraising through the foundation. So it's hard to say, okay, you guys, you go work it out. It needs to be worked out at all three levels. It has to start at the federal provincial table for sure. But simply working out a funding arrangement or simply getting the feds more hands off or the feds more hands on, right? There are battles on both ends of that spectrum. It won't deliver the wonderful outcomes that we want. I think we have to start with 
Governance 101. You can't have three cooks in the kitchen. If you have three mm. cooks, you're not going to end up with the right meal. And that's what's going on right now. Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician, author of When Politics Become, uh, Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian, uh, Canadian Medicare is Failing, and a senior with the senior fellow at the McDonald-Lurie Institute. Dr. Sean Watley, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. As you know, or maybe not, uh, the leaders of Canada, Mexico, and the United States all uh, meeting in Mexico for the Three Amigos Summit. This hasn't happened uh, for a while, simply due to the global pandemic, and uh, well, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> and now, of course, after a few years hiatus, they are back together. Is it largely symbolic? Are we seeing results? Let's bring in Wayne Petrosi, Professor Emeritus, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Wayne, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Happy New Year. Well, Happy New Year to you, and I'm doing just fine, thanks. Uh, your thoughts on this Three Amigos Summit? Uh, we know that these have gone on in the past and in many ways been symbolic. Uh, more result-driven result, uh, result driven this time out? What are your thoughts of this uh, year's edition? I think certainly there, there have been more, more results, and I think we'll see other actions flowing from the decisions they've taken. I mean, if you look, for example, at, at the case of Haiti, Haiti is both a humanitarian crisis for the region as well as it's part of the immigration crisis on the U.S. border with Mexico. And it's very it, – we've struggled with this situation for better part of two decades. And I think there's a growing recognition. The Americans certainly can't go into Haiti. Their history just, just doesn't make that possible. Mexico really speaks for the many of the voices in the Caribbean – and so that's who it's representing. And I think there's real pressure on Canada to, to, in a sense, contribute to both pieces. That is, to assume some kind of policing role, or at least the leadership of a policing role in Haiti, perhaps with uh, supported by contributions from, of police from some of the local Caribbean states, as well as hoping Canada can do something to relieve the pressure there are thousands and thousands of Haitians at the Mexico-U.S. border and hoping that somehow Canada can agree to do what we've done in the past. You know, as you know, we've had one-off agreements where we've brought in several tens of thousands of, of, of Haitians working in concert with local Haitian-Canadian communities in, in Quebec, NGOs, other sponsorship groups. And so perhaps Canada can help out there as well. So I think there we're going to see something happen. Um, we heard going into this summit uh, the phrase, uh, a new North American vision. What does that mean? Uh, have we taken each other for granted? I, I, I think what we, to an extent, we've taken each other for granted. We've assumed good relations. We've assumed relatively free movement of, of, of goods and services and capital. And, you know, that probably wasn't wise. So I, I think there's a recognition that there needs to be some attention paid to the home front. And so we've seen that with, you know, agreements they've been working out on auto parts manufacturing, agreements they've been working on in the area of the semiconductor industry. Uh, it's, it's not a surprise that some of the biggest of the semiconductor companies, if they're looking to locate in North America, they, like the, they, they wouldn't mind doing some of that in Mexico. Uh, because there are already large manufacturing complexes in the southwest United States, Mexico offering home for that kind of investment as well, benefits Mexico, obviously, benefits the semiconductor industry, and it's, a, again, what we call friendshoring, bringing industry back from far shores to near shores. Uh, you talked about car parts. Uh, I remember when uh, Joe Biden took office and uh, there was a big push to, uh, to, to get into EVs and, 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 and transition and such from fossil fuels uh, to a sustainable renewable energy and such. Many Canadians were concerned. Um, there was protectionist measures by American, uh, built in America with American parts and such. Uh, it, have those fears been alleviated? Because we... We all know that parts travel between Canada, Mexico, and the United States several times before a car is actually built. Uh, have all those concerns been alleviated? And, and well, as you said, we'll work together. It, it, in a sense, today, we, we got a decision from a tribunal on precisely this point 
Mexico had objected. The Trump administration last minute submitted in higher differential tariffs on auto parts coming from Mexico and Canada than the U.S. Under the terms of the trade pact, Mexico filed a, a grievance. Canada joined in on the Mexico side. The, the major auto manufacturers, Ford, General Motors, Stellantis, joined in also on the Mexican side. And today, the, tri the tribunal ruled that, in fact, those differential tariffs, higher differential tariffs, were illegal. So uh, I will see how the Americans react to this ruling, but I suspect they're going to accept it. And it's in the spirit of moving forward on these other agendas. The Mexicans, uh, the, the Americans have other issues that they want addressed. And I think this is, is really was a, some, it's like someone slipping a stone in your shoe at the last second. It wasn't mm -hmm. a bright move. And someone was bound to notice the person wearing the shoe and they called you on it. So uh, obviously, um, we've seen tensions between the United States and Mexico, specifically along the border. This very much heightened during the Trump administration. Are we seeing some sort of, uh, of, of, of unity there, working together, trying to solve the issue? Well, I, I think in one sense, yes, because again, what we've come to see, realize is currently at the at that America at that Mexican American border, uh, common sense would have you think that it's all these Mexicans trying to get into the United States, and it's it's far from that. In fact, the four leading source countries of migrants currently sitting on that border are Haiti, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela. Hmm. Those four. They represent the overwhelming majority of the migrants there. And what, for example, as I said, we're looking at, they're trying to, Mexicans, Americans would like Canada to, to move a few planes down there, say, targeting the Haitians. We have a history of accepting Haitian refugees. We have a significant Haitian Canadian population that can act as a, a source of support for them should we move in that direction. Uh, we also have something, you know, so we're looking. So one of the other things that means is allowing for migration to occur via air rather than by only land points. That's what, again, they they Americans would like Canada and Mexico to go along with. Mexicans would be agreeable. They would like us to be agreeable too. to, again, try to relieve some of that pressure. Now, it's not all coming on us. It's pretty clear. There'll be a pressure on the Americans to accept via air instead of at the Mexican border some of those Cuban refugees. After all, all right, really Cuba is their issue, their problem. They've helped create it. Same with Venezuela. But Canada has a role to play, too. All right. Only got a few seconds left here, Wayne, but I, I want to ask you about energy. Uh, we certainly know about energy security and the Russian invasion of Ukraine and such. It, the weaponization of energy. Was any of that on the docket for any of this? Yeah, it was actually. The, the, the Canadians and, and the Americans have not been keen and not been very happy about restrictive policies the Mexican government put in place on foreign investment in the Mexican oil industry. Mexicans want to turn it into a state-owned sector. Uh, the Mexicans are going to have to come to terms with the fact that they're that not going to get that that's just not going to stand. And so, I yes, they did pursue some resolutions in that area as well. It was a fruitful meeting. Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, giving a sum up of the Three Amigos Summit this year. Wayne, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome, and you be well too. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. And you can hear him, uh, sorry, read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Or hear him if you get the audio edition. Yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? Uh, <laughs> I'm good. You? I am uh, I'm doing okay, except for the bad news today. Did you hear who died today? Um, Jeff Beck. Jeff Beck. Yeah, Jeff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I... I I realize that Jeff Beck probably is not for a lot of people uh, in the elite of the elite name brand rock stars, but my goodness, uh, what a yeah. what one a of player. the all time greats! One of the absolute all time greats. 
And, you know, it's like um, uh, Alan Cross always jokes that whenever I call him, the only thing I'm calling him about is to give us an obit on a dead rock star. But uh, I digress. <laughs> it's just that era. All right. So looking at the lineup for your show, this is uh, an interesting topic. Your first one up. Um, uh, obviously, I've got a, a teenager in high school and uh, a kid at university. I had my kids later in life. Well, I didn't. My wife did. Uh, and I. it doesn't take much to realize, boy, doing homework and assignments is a lot different now than it was when we were in school and you've got an interesting story about a new app that is capable of producing essays that pass as authentic uh where do we draw the line here ai in homework uh where is this going well it's a thing called chat gpt and i don't even know what the gpt stands for uh people can come up with their own (laughs) decision on what that is but essentially this is 2023's version of cole's notes Only instead of just doing the work for you, reading the book, it does your work for you, writing the essays as well. And be, and the thing about it that now, as I'm reading this, and we're going to be talking to someone who knows what this is all about better than I do, but my understanding of why this is so concerning to educators is that over the last, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, while the internet has been accessible to everybody for everything, you know that professors and others will sometimes take a chunk of an essay, cut and paste it into the Google search bar to see if anything comes up as plagiarized. Let's just yep. do a random test to see. Apparently, this now isn't going to be susceptible to that because it's AI. It's going to really be creating this stuff. So mm. you're you're now at a point where what if you're an educator, if you're a teacher or a professor, whatever else, what do you do? I mean, do you just throw up your hands and say, you know what, if they don't want to learn, if they don't want to learn how to write, if they don't want to prepare themselves, I don't care. Maybe that's what you have to do. Because I don't know. And again, we're going to be talking about this. But what do you do if someone's cheating and it's almost an undiscoverable cheat? Uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is so tough because obviously is the new world about just providing the information or proven that you've created the information yourself. This reminds me of the cursive, um, uh, arrangement where you might remember a while back, uh, Kathleen Wynn decided that we really didn't need to teach the kids writing in school because there's going to be so much done digitally. Um, and I remember my kids going through school through grade four and that was it for them for cursive. Uh, and now obviously it's since been brought back, but you know, where is the skill? Is the skill just finding, collecting the information, cutting and pasting, or is it actually forming it into your own words and being able to create it? Well, isn't this what we are talking about? Isn't, hasn't the educate whole education thing been like, even with math, I mean, you wouldn't yeah. think of math as being something math is, you know, you, you do the formula, you get the answer, yeah. boom. But more recently, schools want you to explain how you got your answer because it's yeah. the process that, well, if you now take away the thing that says, I'm going to be able to express writing is, it's a creative thing. I love, I love it. It's, but Mm -hmm. it's a creative thing. It's a way to communicate, but it's also a way to express yourself. And if you take away the tools that you learn how to express yourself this way, I think it does a few things. A, people will not learn how to write. Writing is, you know, I I don't want to say like, it's not easy. You have to work at it. You get better at it when you work at it, but if you never do it, you don't get good at it. And the other thing I think by writing stuff, you make your ability to express yourself with your words better. That was my point. If you take that away, we're going to now, you're not going to be able to express yourself verbally or on paper, but at least we got this AI. And here's the thing. Microsoft apparently is investing or is about to invest heavily into this by buying 49% or something. So it's not even like this thing is going to be this, oh, it's a secret black market, dark web resource (laughs) that nobody knows. Everybody is going, it's probably going to be put onto the programs that are on your computers. Everybody is going to have access to this. It's going to be pushed hard. So this is a, this is a real thing. And even if you're a parent, what do you do? Well, how, how do you prove, I mean, do you make your kids sit and write their essay in front of you to show that they're doing it? As, <laughs> do, are most parents going to care? Do they have time for that? Yeah, really. That's a good point. All right. It's all coming up on the Scott Radley Show after the 6 o'clock news. Is it live or is it Memorex? Uh, thank you, Scott. Have a great show tonight. 
the, the show, by the way, will be uniquely put together without the purposes of AI, just for the record. That's I right. And it's all this man's hard work. It's all his words, all his own thoughts. He's, he doesn't have a wire in his ear, man. It's coming straight out of the, from the brain to the mouth. There you go. And that's what often gets us in trouble. Better have fun, Scott. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Uh, thanks to Diana Weeks, Will Erskine, and Tom McKay for producing. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. There's a lesson to be had with your story of a two-hour time limit, Scott. When in doubt, cook at home. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.